0: me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 17. Thank you. I always feel like I have a bazooka or something pointed right at me when I've got that thing in front of me. Um, And by the way, just as an aside, you know, I mentioned in my prayer regarding uh, people serving that God gives gifts to everyone, and, and uh, there is no ministry in the body that is too small. Uh, everything is important. And I think about Sharon, who for years uh, has kept my throat soothed with uh, the appropriate uh, throat lozenges, and a Frank, who has graciously brought me cool water in the name of Jesus every week to keep my whistle wet, not that I whistle, but uh, it's uh, it's nice to have the water. And I just appreciate those very practical ministries because they're so important. Uh, you have no idea how much they have blessed you <laughs> rather than listen to me rasp and hack my way through a sermon. <laughs> so anyway, uh, in Luke chapter 17, you remember last time we left off with verse 10, and this morning uh, we're going to pick up with verse 11. Luke 17.11, and I think it's appropriate this morning just to read this passage for you so we get the whole thing in mind, and then we're going to talk about it in uh, some depth. Beginning in verse 11 of Luke 17, "...while he was on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. As he entered a village, ten leprous men who stood at a distance met him, and they raised their voices, saying, "'Jesus, Master!' Have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priest. And as they were going, they were cleansed. Now one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving thanks to him. And he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered and said, Were there not ten cleansed, but the nine? Where are they? Was no one found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Stand up and go. Your faith has made you well. Now having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be uh, observe, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there it is, for behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. And He said to the disciples, the days will come when you will long to see the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. They will say to you, look there, look here. Do not go away and do not run after them. For just like the lightning when it flashes out of one part of the sky, shines to the other part of the sky, so will the Son of Man be in His day. But first He must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And just as it has happened in the days of Noah, so it will also be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, the one who is on the housetop and whose goods are in the house must not go down to take them out. And likewise, the one who is in the field must not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you, on that night, there will be two in one bed, and one will be taken, and the other left. There will be two women grinding at the same place. One will be taken, the other will be left. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken, and the other left. And they answered and said to him, "Where, Lord?" And he said to them, "Where the body is, there also will the vultures be gathered. You know uh the coming of jesus, believe it or not, has some interesting things in common with a roller coaster. Um, jesus said that to the Pharisees, the kingdom of God is here, and they didn't have a clue what he meant by that. But what he was saying is the kingdom is going to be growing gradually. And I don't know how many of you uh, like roller coasters. I, for one, don't. I've been on one, one, and uh, prefer not to repeat the experience. But uh, if you happen to like them, uh, you know how you get to the bottom of the trough, you know, uh, and, and it starts up. And uh, it kind of has a little bit of uh, uh, emphasis when it gets going, but then it starts up the, the next hill and it begins to slow down. And you hear the chains grinding and the engines whining, you know, as you're approaching the top. And you know what's coming, don't you? It's going to reach the top eventually. And then when it gets there, man, is it going to explode violently down the next hill. And uh, I think that this whole passage is telling us that it's it's kind of like that. Uh, the kingdom of God is going to begin somewhat slowly and innocuously, and you know we're going to uh, kind of wonder, okay, is anything happening? But then, as we begin to move toward the zenith of the hour of uh, the the time of this age, uh, there's going to be a sudden cresting. And Jesus is going to come back in power and glory. And man, is that going to be a ride. Uh, We're not going to go down. We're going to go up. And uh, there's going to be a lot of things happening. And it's going to be a fascinating uh, time. And so, uh, Jesus is telling us in this passage that we are to live in anticipation of His coming. Now, the interesting thing is that... As a prelude to this um, teaching about his coming, there's this story about ten lepers. And Luke gives us a place setting. He said, as he was on his way to Jerusalem. Now, if you remember our studies in Luke thus far, and they go way back a while now, uh, you know that uh, we've been going toward Jerusalem for a while. It doesn't take that long to get there. Uh, but this has not been a direct path. This has been a meandering kind of ministry. But Luke gives us that marking place earlier in his gospel that Jesus is setting his face toward his objective. And now we're being given another place marker. We're being told that this is the time when Jesus is again... Fine-tuning his focus. It's not so much that he's taking a straight path to Jerusalem, but that he is now beginning to fine-tune his focus as he moves toward his destiny and the purpose for which he came. And as he does that, Luke tells us that he is on his way to Jerusalem and he uh, comes into this village, outskirts of the village, undoubtedly where there are ten lepers who recognize him. His um, uh, fame has preceded him, and they recognize him, and uh, they begin to cry out. Uh, They see hope on the horizon, and they cry out, Master, uh, have mercy on us. Do something for us. Uh, Bring us some kind of miracle. And... um, jesus doesn't even uh it appears from the story bother to get near them not that he was afraid to because he's touched many people uh with disease uh but that this is demonstrating his power he just simply says to them go show yourselves to the priest now leprosy was uh a very dread disease it's described all the way back in uh the first five books of the bible it's uh it's one of those things that required a person to be more or less uh exiled from his uh town and from his village because uh that particular uh, form of skin disorder uh that they had uh called that they called leprosy was so um contagious that uh these people had to dwell outside of the area away from everyone else and they were not permitted to go back in the town. Uh, they, they were away from their family. They were away from their jobs. They, their, their lives were basically falling apart because of this disease. It was a terrible thing uh, because of the ostracism that occurred uh, with leprosy. And so they had been, and, and naturally, since they couldn't hurt one another, they would gather in colonies uh, and uh, kind of try to take care of each other. And this is the scenario that's before us. And if a person felt that they had been healed of this disease, then the requirement was that they go to the priest, and the priest had certain uh, things that he was supposed to go through to inspect their, their skin. And if he indeed found that they were cleansed, he could pronounce them clean, And they were permitted to go back home, go back to their family, reintegrate with society. And so this is what Jesus was saying to them. Go show yourselves to the priest. And it implied that something was going to happen uh, between this moment and the time when they arrived at the priest. And so as they were going, they were healed. And the scripture says that one of them when he realized that his disease was completely eradicated. And, and by the way, I want you to see the drama of this, because a person who had this disease had open uh, sores and, and scabs and scaliness on their skin, and they had all kinds of problems that were so obvious And this guy is on the way, and all of a sudden he realizes that his skin is smooth. All the lesions have disappeared. There's nothing wrong with him. Even the foul smell uh, has vanished. And he is whole. And when he realizes this, the Scripture says this one man turned back. To give thanks and glory to God. And as he as he turned back to go back to Jesus and and give glory, he falls before his feet and he begins to praise and to worship and to give him glory. And Jesus notes the obvious. Were there not ten that were healed? Where are the other nine? and this one who has come back is a foreigner he is a samaritan of all things uh, the one least likely to recognize the jewish messiah and yet he does he sees more than just a miracle he sees the 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 significance of the fact that jesus is operating in the power of God, in the authority of God. He recognizes that God is working through him. And as he falls at his feet and begins to glorify God for what he has done through this man, Jesus, he is acknowledging in a very interesting way that he has seen the kingdom of God up close and personal. Now, I don't know if the Pharisees that posed the next question uh, were in the temple when those other nine showed up. I don't know what prompted their inquiry, um, what stimulated their thinking, but um, it raises an interesting question. And so the Pharisees, uh, as he arrived, we presume either in the village or, or closer to the area the Pharisees, Uh, ask him a question. Uh, They said, uh, tell us um, what is going to be uh, the sign of the coming of the kingdom. And uh, explain to us how we're going to know that this is happening. Now, the Jewish people had been anticipating the arrival of Messiah for a long time. And we know that they completely missed the significant gap in Isaiah between the suffering servant and the glorious King of Kings. Uh, The Jews missed entirely the idea that Jesus would suffer and be crucified for the sins of many. And so they were looking for a Messiah that would bring... To them, dramatic deliverance, establish a political kingdom, uh, re- return Israel to its former days of glory and beyond under Solomon, and and, and that was their anticipation. They wanted to see, uh, you know, this Messiah come, and they're hearing these rumors and they're seeing these signs, and and they're kind of wondering, you know, you can just see their wheels turning. Okay, is this it? What's going on here? So, tell us, Rabbi, if you know, uh, what to be looking for, what to anticipate, uh, what kind of signs and wonders. They had all kind of ideas of things that were going to happen in the heavens and things that were going to happen on the earth and and dramatic uh, demonstrations of power. And Jesus uh, gives a very interesting answer to them. Uh, He says, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there it is, for behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Now, this is a curious answer, because in just a few verses, he starts to give some indications of his coming. That's kind of what the Pharisees wanted to know. But they really didn't want to know that. They had an ulterior motive. They were blind to most spiritual truth, and it wouldn't have done a whole lot of good to explain it to them. So Jesus begins with them at the beginning. And He says, The kingdom of God is in your midst. The essence of what he's saying is the kingdom of God is not an event. It is a person. Where I am, there the kingdom is. When you see me, you are seeing the kingdom. It's not, uh, necessarily going to begin with cataclysmic, uh, you know, heavenly events. It's going to begin rather innocuously, rather in a small way. Yes, Jesus did powerful things, but when you think about it, they were limited to Palestine. The whole world didn't see these miracles, only the people living between the Galilee and the, and the um, uh, Dead Sea. Only the people living in in that region of Palestine saw His miracles. And yet, wherever He was, He announced the Kingdom of God has come. What made the difference? He had shown up with the power of God. And the Kingdom of God is not a location or a political system. The Kingdom of God is a... A demonstration of the power of God that overcomes the effects of sin. It's a dominion. Do you follow me with that? Right now, this world is lost in sin. The vast majority of the world is in the bondage of sin. There are many Christians, believers in Jesus Christ, to be sure. But for the most part, the world, as the Scripture says, lies in the evil one. Uh, It's covered in darkness. Uh, That's why Luke says early in his Gospel, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And those who dwelt in the edge of the shadow of death, upon them a light has dawned. Because the world is dwelling in darkness, under the power of sin. And sin manifests itself in all kinds of ways. Not only in the self-centered nature that all of us have, in the hideousness of our thoughts and actions, but it lies in in the fact that the the ground itself is cursed, that the enemy uh, of our souls is the prince of the power of the air, that darkness reigns and sin is in control in so many places, and so many events. Crime is rampant. Um, business is uh, corrupt in so many cases. Politics and nations are corrupt and have ulterior motives. Um, people suffer from awful illnesses, not because of their own sin, but because sin is in the world. And wherever Jesus went, He was about the business of undoing the damage of sin. It was His mission to reverse the effects. He healed the sick. He restored sight to the blind. He enabled the lame to walk. He forgave the woman caught in adultery and gave her a brand new opportunity for life. And the man at at the, the pool of Bethesda and other people that he encountered with new beginnings and new chances. He gave people an opportunity to be different. He reversed the power of sin in the lives of people so that they were freed and restored to fellowship with God. And by acknowledging Him as their Lord and Savior, they came under a different dominion. So you see, the kingdom of God is not about a political system. It's about a person. It's about coming under the Lordship of Christ. It's about being liberated by His power. It's about restoration. And the moment we do that, we actually, the Scripture says, come into eternal life. Eternal life is not something you get when you die. It's something you have the moment you turn to Jesus Christ. He indwells you by His Holy Spirit, uh, conquers uh, the, the, the sin and death that has held you in bondage, frees you to walk in newness of life, and liberates you to live in Him. That's a whole brand new experience. And so, Jesus wants them to know, that the kingdom of God is not so much this political um, presentation as it is the presence and the power of God coming in glory to relieve them from the oppression of sin. But then Jesus turns to his disciples. And he says to them, Even though the kingdom of God begins with my presence. And I fast forward to the day of Pentecost when he said, I will fill you with my spirit and you will be my witnesses. And what I have done, you will do also and you will spread this kingdom. And this kingdom will be preached in all the world. And the message of the gospel will go to all the nations. And when the mission is accomplished, then the end will come. But he says, as you begin to near that end of time, when we're approaching the midnight hour of this human era in our history, he says, there will come a time when you will long for my return. Things will get really, really bad. Life will get difficult. And for the godly, it will be oppressive and sad as we see the tragedy of the earth gone wild, humanity uh, gone after uh, the, the dominion of Satan himself. And we will long for his coming. He said, you will want me to come back. And it's not yet. And as the time builds and the hour draws closer, you will long even more and even more. And that very longing, that very yearning for my return will give you such a hunger and such a thirst that you are susceptible to being deceived. And he says, I don't want you to be deceived. I don't want you to misunderstand. I want you to know what's coming. And so he says, there there will be people who will come and they'll say, we, we found the Christ. He's over here. We found the Christ. He's over there. Um, we heard about the Messiah. There's this man growing up in this town, in this country, and, and, and he is undoubtedly going to be the, the reigning Messiah. We've already seen that kind of thing. We've already had that experience. And Jesus says, don't be deceived. Now, Friends, here's where it's important that you know your Bible. It's really important. And I want to, if you don't hear it anywhere else, I want to go on record today. If anybody other than Jesus Christ Himself tells you that Jesus has come, they're a liar. Jesus makes it very plain that when He comes for His own, we each will know it. There will be no mistake about it. You can summarily discard all the headlines, all the announcements, all the proclamations as the product of fools and false prophets. You need not pay any attention Jesus says, it is absolutely clear. When I come back, it will be like the lightning flashing in the sky. No one can miss it. And you of all people, my followers, you will know. You don't have to be deceived. You don't have to be led astray by all of these ideas and these false prophets. Uh, You will know that I have come. Friends, we need to be students of the Scriptures. Relative to the doctrine of last things. So that we're not deceived and and taken uh, in gullibly by uh, false prophets and false hopes and false ideas. Another thing you can summarily dismiss, by the way, is anyone who says that he will return on such and such a day. The man or the woman is a fool. I don't care how much of a student of Scripture they are. I don't care how much of an eschatological scholar. Say that fast three times. I don't care how much of an eschatological scholar they are. I don't care how many Bible verses they marshal and how many signs they put together. And how many things they analyze to convince you that next January the 15th, Jesus will come, or next April, or Easter Sunday 2019. I don't care what they say, they are wrong. Jesus said, No one knows the day or the hour. In fact, as I stand here among you, Jesus said to his disciples, In my limited knowledge as a man walking among you in the power of the Spirit, I don't know that myself. And so you can, again, summarily dismiss anyone who tells you Jesus is coming at a certain time. Don't be taken in by this. In fact, the Pharisees were like some of these people who want to have all of this answer, all of this stuff that they can amass about the second coming. And there's a lesson here for us. I've just told you to be students of the Word, students of the the return of Christ, and I mean that. But don't be fanatics. Don't go overboard. Don't be like those Thessalonians that quit their jobs and left their families and went out and sat on the hillside watching for the return. Stay by the stuff. In fact, the commandment of Jesus is very clear. Work for the night is coming when man's work is done. We are to be at the plow until the moment He returns. We're to be occupied by the mission of the kingdom until Jesus comes back. We're not supposed to be distracted and, and absorbed with all of this uh mumbo-jumbo about trying to figure out every second. Friends, it's more important that we live right today than that we try to figure out the time of His coming. Because we're going to know when He comes. You don't have to worry about it. We need to be sufficiently fortified with the Word of God so that we're not deceived But we need to focus on life here and now. Some people say to me, when are you going to preach a whole series on Revelation? When are you going to preach on the doctrine of last things? And uh, boy, we'd love to hear a a series of messages on that. It's in the Bible. (laughs) It does have value. Someday I will. But I often say tongue-in-cheek, I'll save that until it begins to happen. And then I'll explain it. (laughs) And what I mean by that is, I would rather you grow in holiness and Christ-likeness today, applying the truth of Scripture to your lives. Because if you do that, you'll be ready when He comes. You won't miss a a thing. You'll be right on target. Do you know how you get in the will of God ten years from now? Take the next step today in His will. And then the step after that. If you're always putting your foot down in the path that God has prescribed for you, 10 years from now, you'll still be in that path. You don't have to worry about it. So I would much rather fortify you with truths of living in the power of the Holy Spirit and living with your eyes fixed on Jesus, because I know that if you do that, you'll be ready for whatever comes. And so many people that want to spend all this stuff and time studying the doctrine of last things, they just want to tantalize their minds with all kinds of factoids about uh, cataclysmic events. And I have a feeling that we're never going to fully understand Revelation until we start seeing what makes sense in front of our face. Now, you can take that any way you want to take it, but... I, people are always trying to figure out, what, what do these symbols mean? What does this mean? What does that mean? And I'm not saying that... Actually, to tell you the truth, boy, I'm on a rabbit trail. <laughs> to tell you the truth, I think Revelation is far more literal than anyone typically thinks. And I think when John was up there in that heavenly uh, perspective looking down upon the earth as Christ was unveiling to him the revelation, I think a lot of those crazy beings that he saw, I remember reading uh, Salem-Curban 40 years ago about, you know, how the, the, the grasshoppers and those things were the, were, the, were the F-16s and all that kind of stuff. Oh, please. I think they were demons that John could see that the people on earth can't see. But they were wreaking havoc in ways that people did not comprehend. I think it's far more literal than what we've ever imagined. But the point is, it's given to us to aid us as these events begin to unfold. Now, it is our responsibility to walk with Jesus and to anticipate his soon return. He is coming back. His coming is imminent. It is on the horizon. Jesus is near. We are to live with that in mind. Jesus says in, in those days before I come. He says it's, it, life's life's going to go on. People are going to put fuel in their car. They're going to buy groceries, they're going to get married, they're going to go to work. Whatever normal looks like, they're going to be doing normal things. I don't know what it's going to look like, but whatever it looks like, they're just going to be going on. Everybody's going to think, and if I understand the Scriptures correctly, they're going to be deceived by a world leader that's going to dupe them into this mindset, but they're going to think, we're going to get out of this. We're going to make it. We're going to pull through. We're going to win this war. When we finally get rid of Israel, a lot of our troubles are going to be over. Uh, when, we, when we get rid of those stupid Christians, a lot of our troubles are going to be over. Uh, we're, going to, we're going to come out uh, okay. And they're going to go right on. And Jesus said that's how it's going to look. People are just going to be doing what they normally do, assuming that things are going to go on the same. But he says, don't you be like that. You see what's going on. You recognize it. Friends, look today at the spreading of the gospel. This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the earth. And then the end will come. Today, the gospel is on every single continent and in nearly every country. The gospel message is being proclaimed throughout the world. People are turning to Jesus Christ from every tongue and tribe and nation, The job is not finished. We have a a, a great task before us, but it is growing with rapid acceleration as technology enables us to produce translations more quickly than ever before. We're putting the scriptures uh, in the mother language of people who need them. We're sending missionaries to unreached people groups. God has so ordained it that many dozens and dozens of unreached people groups are coming here. They're studying in our universities and colleges. We have them at our doorsteps. We have the opportunity to love them and expose them to the message of Jesus Christ. And many of them are going to go back to their countries of origin and be leaders. We have a golden opportunity. The Gospel is beginning to to spread. But we also see... The other side of the coin, we see wars increasing. We see natural disasters increasing. We see a technology developing that will make a one-world economy very possible. We see a cashless society emerging. And yes, I like wireless banking as well as anyone. I hardly ever write a check and, and I don't mail anything anymore. It, it's just all electronic. But I know there's going to come a day when that gets all wrapped up in an economy that is driven by a man who is opposed to all that God stands for. We see these things developing. We know that we're living on the cusp of the dawning of a new era. Jesus says we are to be sober-minded. We're to be vigilant. We're to be alert. We're to keep our attention uh, fixed on these and be prepared. And it's important that we not allow ourselves to, to be sucked into the world. He says we're of the world, in the world, but not of the world. We need not to become attached to things. I like things. I enjoy my things. I like my car. I like my house. I like my toys. They are toys. Men call them different things, but they're really toys. I like them. I enjoy them. But listen... Are you ready, in the blink of an eye, to walk away? Can you let it all go? Can you leave your house? Can you abandon your stuff? Are you ready to walk away from it all to follow Jesus Christ? Are you willing to proclaim His name no matter the cost? And one day when that trumpet sounds, are you going to look back at what you're losing? Or are you going to look up to what you're gaining? Jesus said you need to be prepared. You need to be on the alert. You need to be vigilant. And don't get sucked into the things of the world. Don't let them uh, occupy a, a, a significant place in your heart. It's just stuff. It's just stuff. You know, it's interesting when people come to the end of their days and they know that their own lives are drawing to an end regardless of what's happening in the world. They become strangely detached from the things of earth. All the things that were important to them don't matter so much anymore. And, and, and the viewpoint changes. And all of a sudden, the most important thing is family. Family. And if they know Jesus, it's drawing near to Him. Other things just lose their interest. For those who know the Lord, anticipating Jesus is the most wonderful treasure in all of life. And wanting to ensure that our loved ones go with us is so terribly important. Because Jesus says there will come a moment. That roller coaster is going to top the crest and it's going to start down, down the slope. <laughs> and it's going to be amazing from there on out. There will come the moment. A trumpet will sound. The dead in Christ will be raised. We which are alive will be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air. Our bodies will be transformed into their eternal, glorified, and resurrected bodies. We will see Him in the flesh, but it's going to be a glorified flesh, resurrected in power. It's sown in dishonor, it's raised in honor, it's sown uh, ignobly, it's raised in glory and might. It's so deteriorating and broken and beaten up and, and worn out. It's raised in strength and vigor and vitality. There's going to come a day. And it's going to be so sudden and so swift. Two people are going to be side by side. The one who knows him will vanish in the air. And the one who doesn't will be left. Husbands and wives will be separated if they have not both settled their decision for Christ. Co-workers will be separated if they have not settled their decision for Christ. In the, in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, will be changed into incorruptible glory with Jesus Christ. We will behold Him face to face, the bride and the bridegroom as we meet him in the air in his glorious return friends every time every time i stand before a grave at a cemetery at the end of the funeral service my prayer is that we will continue to march to the sound of a distant trumpet anticipating the first peal of the note As the trump of God resounds, and that person comes out of the ground, and we're caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air. John says, everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself, just as he is pure. There's something about the anticipation of the coming of Jesus that actually produces holiness in our lives. It writes our thinking. It establishes our priorities. It puts things in perspective. It gives us a cause to live for the right thing. Because we know that what really matters is that we are prepared to welcome the bridegroom on that day. Is that how you live? Do you long for His coming? Does this message stir your heart with longing? Are you anticipating His return? Do you wish it would be today? Or maybe in the morning? Or maybe next week? Is there anything you're doing that's more important than that in your mind? The one who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Father, we come to you this morning in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask in Jesus' name that you cause us to think rightly that we would not be Intellectual fanatics looking for clever interpretations and pinpointing dates on calendars. Rather, that we would live with our eyes fixed on you, with our priorities straight, with our passions aligned with yours, with a mission burning in our heart to speak to all the world next door and across the ways of the good news until at last the task is done and you come back. Lord, we love your appearing. We live for your coming With joy we anticipate the sounding of the trumpet. Lord, make our hearts ready. In Jesus' name, Amen.